One of my favourite subjects in high school was English. And for the HSC I did as much English as you could uh, all those years ago and I loved it. I had a, a brilliant teacher to whom I owe an enormous debt given that my whole life is about words. I guess it's lucky for you that I, liked it. I like English and, and studied a lot of English. So I really do owe my English teacher. She was brilliant. Now please don't groan or roll your eyes. <laughs> But I especially enjoyed studying poetry. And uh, in year 11 and 12, we studied some poems by the great 19th century English poet John Keats, whose life was actually quite depressing. Uh, He was fabulously in love with a young lady. Uh, They were secretly engaged, but he died of tuberculosis before they could get married. And he was just 25 years old. We also studied some of the works of one of the greatest American poets of the 20th century, a man named Robert Frost. And Frost actually recited one of his poems at the inauguration of President John F. Kennedy. He was the first poet ever to speak at a presidential inauguration. Now again, stick with me. I know poetry probably isn't your favourite subject. But I'm going to read to you one of Frost's poems that I studied. Don't worry, it's, it's very short. Uh, got my Robert Frost here, and uh, the poem is called Fire and Ice. Again, it's very short, so I'm not going to subject you to lines and lines of poetry. Here goes. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favour fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction ice is also great and would suffice. It's quite a pithy little poem, isn't it? Now I'm not going to analyse the themes of this poem with you this evening. I didn't read it because I want to discuss its content. I simply read read it to point out two things. First of all, poetry is designed to make you think, isn't it? Uh, You listen to this poem and you wonder what Mr Frost was getting at. You wonder what was going on in his life. You wonder what generated these thoughts and feelings that he put into words. And then secondly, poetry often uses images to communicate the sentiments the author wishes to express. In this little poem I just read, there are two images, fire and ice, and the world being burned up and the world being frozen over. These are very powerful pictures. I say all of this because in our study through Amos, we come to some poetry. It's not immediately apparent in our English translation, but if you could read Hebrew, uh, we would recognise it straight away. And it's important that we pick up on this point because it helps us understand what what the Lord was saying to Israel by the mouth of his prophet. Our text this evening is Amos chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. And if you are familiar with any verses in the book of Amos, then it's probably... Chapter 3, verse 3. Now to set the context, I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 6, right through to chapter 3, verse 8. So please, if you would, follow along in your Bible, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help as we study his word. Amos chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, 
because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. The pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor, and turn aside the way of the meek, and a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar, and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. It destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. Also I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and led you forty years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up your sons for prophets, and of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? But ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink, and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. Therefore the flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not strengthen his force, neither shall the mighty deliver himself. Neither shall he stand that handleth the bow, and he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. Neither shall he that rideth the horse deliver himself. And he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, saith the Lord. Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he have taken nothing? Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father, help us now this evening to understand uh, this word. Uh, we know that all scripture, scripture is profitable for us. I pray that you, by the work of your spirit, would make this text profitable to us this evening. Help us to understand it. And this we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. At first glance, our text this evening, chapter 3, verses 3 to 6, seems to be fairly straightforward. Uh, fairly easy to interpret and to understand. Uh, but the more you think about it, the more you realise that it's not that easy to understand. Uh, what's the point of these seven questions? What's the point? <laughs> what do these pictures mean? These references to birds being taken in a trap and a lion devouring its prey and two people who can't walk together. What does it all mean? Uh, how do these pictures relate to each other and to what Amos goes on to say? Now, because this is a difficult text to interpret, there are differences of opinion among Bible scholars. I wouldn't say these opinions are wildly divergent, but they are significant, which is not uncommon when it comes to poetry, and especially very ancient poetry that was written in a language that most people don't speak. I've done quite a bit of reading this week, and I've settled on the interpretation that makes 
the most sense to me and that I believe best honours the principles of hermeneutics that we adhere to and we should know all about those principles after this morning's message. Uh, if you've heard preaching on this passage before, this message might be a little bit different. Now I'm going to address these verses under three headings, which you can see there in the outline. Number one, these are pictures, not allegories. Number two, there is a progression in the text. Number three, there is a punch at the end. These are pictures, not allegories. There is a progression in the text. And there is a punch at the end. And so, first of all, these are pictures, not allegories. This is the direction that some of the older commentators go. They see this as a series of allegories. Uh, they see the figures in these little pictures as being symbolic. So, for example, the two people walking together, or not walking together, in verse 3, is the Lord and Israel. How can the Lord and Israel walk together unless they agree? Uh, then in verse 5, the man who catches a bird in a trap. Well, that's a picture of Israel being caught by the Lord in judgment. Now, the meaning of these verses, if, if interpreted this way, is not necessarily untrue. Uh, Israel's relationship with the Lord was in bad shape. They weren't walking together because they weren't in agreement. And judgment was coming. Uh, these are pictures you might use to symbolise these truths, but I, I don't think we're supposed to interpret them this way because that's not what the Lord intended when he gave this word. I don't think he intended these pictures to function as symbols. Okay? These are not little allegories. These are not little parables. We are supposed to take them as pictures, vignettes, if you like. These are four scenes that the original hearers and readers of Amos' prophecy would have been able to imagine quite easily. Scene one. Two people who can't walk together because they don't agree. They probably can't agree on where they're going. <laughs> Or they're disagreeing so sharply about something that they just can't bear to be together. I can't walk next to you. <laughs> but in truth, we don't really know what's going on. Scene two. This one is a bit tricky. But the key is knowing when a lion roars. Verse four. Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he have taken nothing? The answer to both questions is no. When the lion is stalking his prey, he's not roaring, he's quiet. He doesn't want to scare his prey off. When he's killed his prey, when he's devouring that animal in his den, that's when he roars. And usually it's to keep the other lions away. <laughs> the picture is of a lion feasting on its victim, growling at anyone who would come near. Scene three. A man catches a bird in a trap, perhaps to be eaten or sold to someone else to eat. Verse 5, can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin or trap is for him? In other words, can a bird be caught if there is no trap? Uh, you tried to catch a bird with your bare hands lately? <laughs> Unless it's a chicken, no chance. Okay? Obviously no. Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Again, the answer is no. The hunter isn't going to disassemble his trap until he's caught something in it. Scene four. 
A city is being attacked by its enemies. An alarm is sounded and the people are afraid. Verse 6, shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Of course the people are going to be afraid. And then the second part of the verse, which I'll say more about in a moment, shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Now remember, this is poetry. These are pictures that are supposed to make us think. The Lord has drawn our attention to them on purpose. They communicate an idea or a message. Uh, To use a common expression, there is something going on here that we are supposed to recognise. And that brings us to the second heading in our outline. There is a progression in the text. And maybe you've cottoned on to this already. There is a progression in seriousness and intensity. The first scene is two men or two women who can't walk together because they don't agree. Okay, that's unpleasant. (laughs) That might involve some hurt feelings, but that's about it. And the circumstances are vague. We, We don't really know what's going on. But then we go from a disagreement in verse 3 to a death in verse 4. One animal killing another animal. But again, that's not so serious. That happens all the time in the natural world. But then we have another death. This time a human being killing an animal in verse 5. A hunter catching a bird in a trap. And then we have another death, perhaps multiple deaths. We have human beings killing other human beings in verse 6. A city is being attacked by its enemies. Each of these encounters involves either dissolution or death. They get progressively more intense. They move from a vague disagreement between two people to the natural world that is red in tooth and claw, to the hunter who takes the life of his prey, to a violent and bloody assault on a city whose residents are terrified. And the reader gets carried along. That's the other part of this. Each of these scenes are described in the form of a question. And so the reader is automatically drawn in. The the reader is imagining the scene in their mind and answering the question. There is a build-up in this text, an ascent towards the summit, towards the message the Lord wants to get across to his people. The reader is carried along, the reader is sensing the increasing seriousness of each picture, and then the Lord says, verse 6, Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? There's the punchline, or the, or the punch. <laughs> that brings us to the third and final heading in our outline. There is a punch at the end. Now this is the last line of the poem. Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? In verse 7, Amos goes back to prose, okay, to the ordinary form of writing. And I wanted to get to verses 7 and 8 this evening, but I thought that would probably give us too much to chew on and digest. Now this final line, this last question, is the climax of this series of pictures. But before we think about what it means, we have to address this word evil. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that God is not the author of sin. 
He is in fact entirely separate from sin. And so what are we to make of this statement? Shall there be evil in a city? And the Lord hath not done it. I won't go into detail this evening. The key is recognising that this word doesn't always refer to moral evil. Uh, Alec Mocha sums it up well in his commentary, and the, the quote is in the outline if you want to follow along. Evil is a word used about 640 times in the Old Testament. Its main uses are of moral evil, whether against the law of God, an affront against God or man, about 350 times, and physical calamity, disaster, hurt of the body or loss of goods, about 270 times. It must always be interpreted according to context. Here it refers to historical calamity or overthrow in war. This word might have been used in ancient Israel if your house burned down or your fishing boat sank in a storm or your crops were destroyed by locusts or your city was defeated in war. Something bad happened to you. You experienced evil, natural evil. You experienced something negative, something hurtful. Something calamitous. So what exactly was the prophet getting at in this final line? If this is the punchline, then what's the message of the poem as a whole? Commentators agree, and I think it makes sense, that the Lord by the mouth of his prophet was addressing something that the people of Israel believed. The question is, was he addressing a true belief or a false belief? Was Amos making a connection to or tapping into Israel's belief in the sovereign providence of God? That all things are under his control, even the circumstances that result in death and destruction. Is that the sense of this final question? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Is the answer Amos was expecting from Israel something like this? Well, yes, of course, that's what we believe. We know the Lord is ruling over all things. Was Amos tapping into a true belief? Or was he addressing a false belief? You're free to come to your own conclusion, but I think Amos was addressing a false belief in Israel. And it was this. The belief that the Lord would never bring calamity on them. Because they were his chosen people. It seems likely to me that there was a pervasive conviction in Israel that the kind of things pictured in these scenes wouldn't happen to them. There would be no unpleasantness. There would be no death. There would be no enemies at the gate. And especially not by the hand of the Lord. The Lord is for us. The Lord is our defender. And Amos is saying in this brilliant piece of poetry, you're wrong. The Lord is going to bring to pass these things. There is going to be discomfort and defeat and death. Shall there be evil in a city, you know, one of your cities, and the Lord hath not done it? That's exactly what's going to happen to you. One author sums it up this way, and the quote is there in the outline for you. Through Amos... Yahweh heralds his judgment on Israel's civil religion and the society and government it sustained and sanctified. The God who was to bring military disaster on the surrounding countries, which is prophesied in the oracles against the nations in chapter 
1 verse 3 to chapter 2 verse 5, would bring military defeat to Israel's armies. This verse, verse 6, in other words, reinforces chapter 2 verses 13 to 16, where Israel's defeat is prophesied. We read those verses earlier on. The flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not strengthen his force. Neither shall the mighty deliver himself. He that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, saith the Lord. This verse reinforces chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, even as it expresses its truth in another way. The encounter of Yahweh with Israel is one of destruction and casualties. The meeting between Yahweh and his people will not be pleasant. That's the sobering message of this little piece of poetry. The last Sunday evening when we considered verses 1 and 2 in this chapter, I talked about false assumptions. And the message of these verses, verses 3 to 6, is along the same lines. That the prophet was dealing with a false belief, a kind of complacency. Well, because we are who we are, because we are the chosen ones. We're always going to be safe and comfortable and prosperous. The Lord is always going to look after us and protect us from harm. The opposite was true. The Lord was going to bring calamity upon his people for their rebellion. We would do well to listen to this word and take heed lest we start to think the same way. This reinforces the message that we took home last week. Uh, the Lord takes our sin seriously. And if we don't, if there is no effort on our part to resist temptation, if there is no repentance, he will deal with us and it won't be pleasant. We must never be lulled into thinking that the Lord is okay with the waywardness and rebellion of his children. I won't repeat any more of what I said last week. I hope it stuck with you. I hope it came to mind when you were tempted to, to do the wrong thing. Hey, the Lord's not okay with this. <laughs> There is another message in this text for us, and with this I'll finish. The Lord was going to bring calamity upon his people. He was going to bring their enemies against them, and they would suffer terrible defeat. And this reminds us that God reigns over the kingdoms of this world. He reigned over Israel. He reigned over Assyria, who, who he was going to bring against Israel. He reigned over Babylon and Egypt and every nation mentioned in the Old Testament, every kingdom, and he did with them whatsoever he pleased. God is not absent from this world. He is not spending his days sitting back and watching history play out like someone lounging in their recliner watching TV. No. God is at work in this world bringing to pass his good purposes, moving it all towards the end that he has ordained. And that's a great comfort to us, especially at this time when it feels like things are a bit out of control. It feels like there is evil just about everywhere we look. Bad things are happening on a weekly basis. There is one calamity after another, a, a fire somewhere, an earthquake somewhere else, etc., etc., and the influence of bad people seems to be growing more and more. And it can rattle us. 
Or you can become anxious, or angry, or discouraged, or distracted. We need to pause and remember that the Lord's mighty hand is over it all. The world is not out of control, not at all. Brothers and sisters, this is the right kind of complacency. (laughs) This is a righteous complacency, if you will. Resting in the truth about God. Not worrying. Believing that everything really is going to be okay because we belong to him. And he is in control. May our hearts not be troubled by what's happening around us. But let's keep our eyes on the King, our lovely Lord Jesus, and live each day for him. Amen.